If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. As we uh, continue in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 23. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is, in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heath, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heath answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heath, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heath, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heath, even all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver? What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heath, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heath before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heath. Now, as we look at this chapter in Genesis this morning, we want to first of all consider the the historical account itself and understand what's going on here. And then secondly, we're going to focus in on a particular statement which Abraham makes here in this chapter and see how the words that Abraham applies to himself become programmatic for all of the people of God for all time. And so with that, there'll be two main points for this morning. First of all, a grave for Sarah. 
a grave for Sarah. And then secondly, God's people are strangers and sojourners. God's people are strangers and sojourners. And so, first of all then, a grave for Sarah. As we've seen in the book of Genesis, Sarah is a trophy of God's grace. Not only was she a barren woman who became the mother of Isaac, the child of promise, but she also passed from her previous doubting and seeming unbelief to faith in that she, in the words of Hebrews 11.11, considered him faithful who had promised and received the ability to conceive. God had made laughter for her who had laughed at God's promise. And God did that by giving her a son. And Peter later described her as a holy woman who hoped in God, 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6. But even the trophies of God's grace, holy women, holy men who hope in God, even they grow old and die. And Sarah, too, went the way of all the earth, dying at the age of 127 there in Hebron. And Abraham mourned for her and wept for her as a husband who loved his wife. But as we know, when a death occurs, there are also practical realities that needed to be attended to. Abraham needed a burial plot for his wife. As of yet, though he had been promised the land, he did not own any of the land himself. In the words of Hebrews 11:9, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. And so not owning any land himself, he goes to those who did, the sons of Heath, the Hittites who were in the land, who owned the land. And he speaks to them there in the city gate where the business would have been conducted. This is where the legal transactions of the day were dealt with, the court cases and so on. And as a stranger and sojourner among them, he, he asked for a burial site, as seen in verse 4. He's not asking for a gift but simply asking for someone to be willing to sell him some land. And it's interesting to note how the sons of Heath, for their part, acknowledge the regard in which they hold Abraham. They refer to him in verse 6 as a mighty prince among them. Though Abraham owned no land, nevertheless he was a wealthy man. He had servants, he had livestock. We saw a few weeks ago in chapter 21 how God had made him uh, so great and such a force to be reckoned with that even a king, King Abimelech, wanted to make a covenant with him. Abimelech didn't want to go up against Abraham, he wanted Abraham on his side. And so Abraham has attained some stature, even though he's a stranger and a sojourner. And the sons of Heath acknowledge this and call him a mighty prince, and they're willing to give him any place that he wanted to bury his dead. Abraham has a particular spot in mind, this place at Machpelah where the cave is. So he asked that they would speak to this man Ephron. As it turns out, Ephron, the son of Zohar, was there himself in that gathering of men at the gate. He heard what Abraham was asking he offered to give him the land. Now, I think it's somewhat difficult to judge whether Ephron truly intended to give the land to Abraham as a gift or whether he was simply being culturally polite by offering it and then expecting that in the end Abraham would, would actually pay up. One way or the other, Abraham does insist on paying for the land and pays 400 shekels of silver for it. Ephron accepts the silver is weighed out in accordance with the standard measure of the merchants of the time. And then verses 17 through 20 show how this transaction is carried out in an official and legal manner there in the city gate. 
Abraham wraps up his business and buries his wife. And this place, this cave and the field at Machpelah facing Mamre becomes an important place in the history of the patriarchs. This is not only the burial place of Sarah, but this is the place where Abraham was buried, as well as Isaac and Rebekah, as well as Jacob and Leah. And you can see that in Genesis 25, 9, Genesis 49, 29 through 32, and Genesis 50, 12 and 13. This is, this is the patriarchal burying spot, this plot here at Machpelah. And while we're here speaking of the issue of death, let me, let me just speak for a moment to this issue of death. We see here in, in Genesis 23, in the case of Sarah, that even among the people of God, death abides. Though we have victory over death through the resurrection of Jesus, death abides and will abide until Christ returns and abolishes it. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Until then, we have to deal with it. Now, obviously, in regard to those who die in the Lord, we do not mourn as those do who have no hope. So we find in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, we know that for those who are in Christ to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. But even with that knowledge, the knowledge of that truth, there is still grief and sorrow at the loss of loved ones. There are funerals to be planned, there are burials to be arranged, and there is a certain sort of quasi-finality about a funeral and a burial. When the casket is closed or when the casket is lowered into the ground and the dirt clods are thrown on top of it, there is a sort of solemnity and quasi-finality there. And I say quasi-finality because we know that that is not the end, but that the dead will be raised either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment, that all who are in their tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will come forth. But even with that knowledge, the death and burial of a loved one marks the closing of a chapter here as far as this earth's history is concerned, at least for us. When J.C. Ryle's third wife died in 1889, he turned away from her grave and said, till the Lord Jesus comes, we part. And even a year later, he wrote to his son and said, life has never been the same thing or the world the same place since my wife died. Now, bearing that in mind, along with the fact that we don't know when death is coming for us or for those whom we know, those whom we love, we need to make sure that we are living in such a way that we have no regrets when those that we know are taken from us. The loss of death is bad enough without being compounded with regret on the part of those of us who are left behind. This means that we need to make the most of the opportunities that we have now. Opportunities to evangelize, opportunities to seek forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation in situations where we have erred and sinned. We need to be making the most of opportunities that we have to assure those whom we love that we do love them, and so on. Our time and opportunities are limited, our lives are short, and so are the lives of those whom we know and love. And in addition to living in such a way as to be ready for the deaths of others, we need to be living in such a way that we are ready for our own death as well. 
When the church historian Philip Schaff died, his friend and colleague W.G.T. Shedd said to a member of the Schaff family, he said, we will all of us soon be gone. Death is a monster, but there is victory through Christ and eternal life. That is everything. The life here is but a little thing and chiefly of value as a preparation for the life beyond. And those words are true. All of us will soon be gone. The life here is but a little thing. When you're young, you think life is long, but I'm 40 now. I don't know how many years I've got left. Maybe another 40, maybe another 50, maybe two days. I have no idea, but life is short. And the chief value of this life is for us to glorify God and to prepare for the world to come. And this brings us then to our second point, which is God's people are strangers and sojourners. This is what Abraham said of himself there in verse 4. The New American Standard there translated the words of verse 4 as, I am a stranger and sojourner among you. King James uh, translated it similarly. Uh, ESV translated it as, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. This was Abraham's position in the land of Canaan. He had been promised the land, but as of yet, he did not own any of it. And if you think about a, a burial plot, a burial plot is, is not, much, not much ground, right? You don't, you don't need much land in order to, to bury a human body. Abraham didn't even have that much at this point in his life. Sarah is 127, he's 10 years older, he's 137. He's had these promises for years. But he had not received them. He was, as of yet, a sojourner in Canaan, still a stranger there. He was, to the inhabitants of the land, as it were, a Johnny-come-lately. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. He had also lived in Haran for a while before showing up in Canaan. He's a stranger and a sojourner. You see something similar in, uh, later on on the lips of Jacob, near the end of Jacob's life. In Genesis 47.9, as he's speaking to Pharaoh, he says, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And the writer to the Hebrews picks up on this and says of the patriarchs in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Patriarchs confessed they were strangers and exiles on earth, as Abraham does here in Genesis 23, 4. And then the writer of the Hebrews goes on. He says, For those who say such things, confessing that they're strangers and exiles, those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So these, these patriarchs were strangers and aliens. This earth was not their home. They were looking forward ultimately to the heavenly country. And what we find even in the Old Testament was that this mentality was not only that of the patriarchs, but also of the godly Israelites in the promised land when things were about as good as they could get. And so David prays in Psalm 
39.12, which, which we sang this morning. He said, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. And those words, stranger and sojourner, are the exact same words in the original that Abraham uses here in Genesis 23.4. And moreover, David puts those same two words in the plural for all of the people in 1 Chronicles 29.15, as he prays in regard to uh, the gathering, the building materials for the temple to pass on to Solomon. 1 Chronicles 29.15, David prays and says, For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. David, David knows. We're short-timers here on this earth. We're strangers and sojourners. All our fathers were strangers and sojourners. This is how it's always been for the people of God. Strangers, sojourners, aliens here on earth looking for the heavenly country. Now, obviously, we find this theme also in the New Testament, expressed in a variety of ways. And so our Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts are to be in heaven with our treasures in heaven as opposed to having our hearts on earth with treasures on earth. Similarly, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 says of the disciples, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The disciples are in the world, but they were not of the world. They were strangers here. And the Apostle Peter uses this kind of language multiple times in uh, the letter of 1 Peter, starting right out of the gate in his, uh, as he addresses the letter, he addresses the letter to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says to them in 1 Peter 1.17 that they were to conduct themselves with fear through the time of their exile or through the time of their sojourning here. We read together those words of uh, chapter 2.11 uh, this morning. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Peter's very clear that this world is not the home of the people of God. They are strangers, aliens, exiles here. They're going somewhere else. You see something similar in the, in the book of Revelation. The language that John uses sets up this contrast between those who dwell on earth versus those who dwell in heaven. And it seems that in doing this, John is not so much addressing the position of the body so much as the position of the heart. That is to say, he seems to use this phrase, those who dwell upon earth, as a designation for, for unbelievers. It's not everybody who lives on earth, but those who dwell upon the earth. That is, those whose hearts are here. And so just to give you kind of a, a few examples of his use of language, the, uh, the martyrs pictured in heaven, Revelation 6.10, who are under the altar cry out for the Lord to avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth. According to Revelation 11.10, it is those who dwell on the earth who rejoice when the two prophets are killed because those who dwell on earth were tormented by those two prophets. In Revelation 13.8, we're told that all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. 
everyone whose name has not been written in, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. These are those who, who dwell on the earth. Their bodies are here and their hearts are here too. But then on the other hand, we see something of, a, of an interesting contrast in Revelation 13, 6, where John describes the blasphemies of the beast. He says that he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell or tabernacle in heaven. Now certainly it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the beast would blaspheme the church triumphant, those whose souls have gone to be with God at their death. But I would say it is at least as likely, if not more so, that the beast will blaspheme the members of the church militant here on earth. Those who, though their bodies are here on earth, their souls are united to God and they're not going along with the wicked things that the beast is seeking to do. One uh, ancient writer, Caesarius of Arles, commented on Revelation 13.6 by saying that the dwelling of God is the saints who are contained within the church, which is called heaven, for they are the habitation of God. As, Paul, as John goes on there in Revelation 13, he says that it was given to the beast to make war with the saints and overcome them. And I think, I think that the picture that John gives us there in Revelation 13 is that the beast blasphemes God, he blasphemes God's people, and then he fights against them and overcomes them. Now, I realize that may be a whole lot more eschatology than you were planning to get from Genesis 23, but I think the point here is that John seems to designate unbelievers as those who dwell on earth and believers as those who dwell in heaven. And so all through the scriptures, there's this theme of God's people being strangers and sojourners here on this earth. Through faith in God the Father and His promised Messiah, God's people are transferred to a new realm, a heavenly realm. And so in light of that, let me ask you a few questions this morning. Number one is this. Where do you live? Where do you live? I'm not talking about your street address. I know where a lot of you live. I can drive to your house. But I'm asking about your heart. Is your heart in heaven or is your heart here on earth? Where are your treasures? Are your treasures here or are your treasures in heaven? The bad thing is that we all start out as worldlings. We are born into the world. By nature, we are then in the world and of the world and therefore walk according to the world, according to the course of this world, dead in trespasses and sins. We heard uh, from our brother Mark reading from Ephesians 2 this morning. And in that condition, we remain, loving the world, loving the things of the world, storing up treasures here, fixing our hearts here, and one way or the other, growing more and more deeply entrenched in the things of the world and the ways of the world. And the only way out is if God raises us from this spiritual death and benightedness and makes us alive with Christ, raises us up with Him, and seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which we also heard from Ephesians 2 this morning. That's our only hope, is to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, being raised from being a citizen of the world to being a citizen of heaven. Jesus calls this change being born again. John 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so in that sense, where do you live? Do you live in heaven or do you live on earth? If you live on earth, it's time to move. And in order to do so, you must repent of your sins 
your sins of loving the world, your sins of treasuring the things of the world, things that are in opposition to God, sins of pride, covetousness, greed, desiring the approval of men and women rather than the approval of God. You need to turn away from these things and from whatever else you have done that sets you at odds with the Lord. And you need to confess these things to the Lord, seek his forgiveness through Christ who died on the cross once for all to bring us to God and to save us from the road to hell. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Again, the life here is but a little thing and chiefly of value as a preparation for the life beyond. We need to make use of the time that we have to be sure that we're ready to be with the Lord when our time here is over. And if you have more questions about what this means, about what it means to repent and believe in Christ, you can talk to me, you can talk to another Christian here. We would love to tell you more about the way of salvation. But if you're here this morning and you are saved, if given that dichotomy of dwelling on earth versus dwelling in heaven, the truth is you actually do dwell in heaven, then let me ask some some follow-up questions. Do you live like it? Do you live like you're a citizen of heaven? In other words, do you confess that you are a stranger and an alien here in this world? Do you confess that though your body is here, your heart is with the Lord in heaven, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? You should confess this. If you are a Christian, you know how things are going to end. You know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. As we find in 2 Peter 3.10. You know that this present state of things will not last forever and that where your treasure is, there your heart is. You know that James says, James 4.14, that you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And you know that there are only two places in the end. The lake of fire and brimstone, and the new heaven and the new earth. You, you know these things. And so do you confess with the godly of all ages that yes, indeed, I am a pilgrim here, a sojourner here. And then, and more importantly, do you not only confess this, but do you actually live like it? It's not merely what we say, but actually what we do. Do we actually live as strangers and sojourners here? If you are a Christian, you'd better live like a stranger and a sojourner here because otherwise, if you do otherwise, it is rank hypocrisy. It is, as they say, trying to, to have your cake and eat it too. If you're trying to claim to be a citizen of heaven but live as a citizen of the world. Because being a Christian means looking out into the world and recognizing that though it was created good by the Lord, nevertheless, it has fallen and it will be destroyed. And also, the world, in the sense of the, the world system, as John tells us, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, these things are at enmity with God. Part of being a Christian means recognizing that and turning our gaze to God and away from the world and living in such a way, then, that we are strangers here on earth. And I say all of that knowing firsthand for myself the pull of the world. It can be really tempting to be in the world and of the world. It can be really tempting to love money, really tempting to be greedy, really tempting to lay up 
our treasures here. Really tempting to live as if this world is all it is. I know that pull. I know those temptations. I once heard a sermon years ago where a man was preaching on on Moses from from Hebrews chapter 11 and how Moses, at the age of 40, uh, turned his back on Pharaoh's court and all of the the worldly riches of that because because he was was looking ahead to the reward. And and the preacher in that sermon made made an interesting point about Moses being age 40. So I said earlier, I'm, I'm 40. But he made the point that at 40, that's the point at which a lot of us start to, uh, start to put down roots in the world and we've, we've accumulated some property and some standing and things. But at 40, he turned his back on all of that and was looking ahead to the reward. And I think kind of a takeaway lesson for me and maybe for you as well is that we need to watch. As we, as we grow older and as uh, you know, our, our property accumulates or, or whatever, that, that even if we have uh, material standing here in the world, we don't set our hearts here. right? You, obviously, here in Genesis 23, Abraham is a man of wealth. He's a mighty prince among the people. The sons of Heath recognize that. We've seen Abraham's wealth time and again in, in the narratives here. But even with the wealth that he had, Abraham still recognized that he is a stranger and a sojourner. And so the the world pulls on us and tempts us to say that this is all there is. We have to push back against that. And even whether we have much possessions or few or none, we have to recognize that this world is not our home. We have to hold loosely to the things here. And so then following that, the obvious question is how do we do it? How do we stop loving the world and stop living for the world and instead live like those whose citizenship is in heaven. In order to do that, we have to, I would say, think things through. Start with first principles. Remind ourselves that the God who created the heavens and the earth also created us, mankind, male and female. He created us to be in his image as the pinnacle of his creation. He created us to exist on earth, but to have fellowship with him. And Adam and Eve originally did have fellowship with him. But they disrupted that fellowship. As it were, they excommunicated themselves from fellowship with God because they listened to Satan instead of to God. And by doing that, they cut themselves off from that for which they were designed. They were designed for fellowship with God, and they cut themselves off from that fellowship. And being cut off from him who is life itself, from whom all of the blessings which flow from fellowship with him, mankind has turned to the things of the earth to fill that void. We were created for fellowship with God, but that was severed by sin, and so we turn into more sin by seeking to fill the void with the things of the world. But the experience of the ages has been that the things of the world cannot fill the void. Can't be done. Just read Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. All that Solomon had, the wisdom, the wine, the wealth, the houses, the vineyards, the gardens, the women, the whole deal, all of that could not satisfy. And what he says explicitly of wealth in Ecclesiastes 5.10 could easily be applied to all of the rest. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. So that's true of money. That's true of land, that's true of houses, mansions, 
women, men, whatever, you, you fill in the blank. He who loves blank will not be satisfied with blank. And why not? Why not? Why is it that all of the pleasures of the world, whether they be sinful or lawful, will not satisfy the longings and the cravings of the heart? Well, it all goes back to the design of things, the, the telos, the goal, the end, the purpose for which we were made. God is the one who has made us. He is the one who has designed our purpose. And try as we may, we can never alter the purpose or the end for which he made us. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Augustine said it well, you have made us for yourselves and you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That being the case, how could we begin to think then that we could be satisfied with the gifts, with the things of earth, all the while neglecting the giver, the creator, the Lord of all? How could we begin to think that a wad of paper in our pockets known as cash, or the numbers on a bank statement or the shiny metal of an automobile will satisfy a heart that was made for fellowship with the living triune God. Years ago, Rolling Stone magazine did an interview with a prominent uh, rock or rap musician, and this musician was talking about the, the image that he was trying to cultivate on MTV and how it was all a fraud. He said, I want everybody to be thinking that I'm having the time of my life, but I'm single and miserable. I'm lonely. He seemed to think that, in his case, finding a wife would, uh, would fix the problem. Now, as wonderful as finding a, a wife or a husband can be, as wonderful as a good marriage can be, that's never going to fill the void that is lacking when fellowship with God is not present. Apart from that fellowship with God, we live in Proverbs 27.20. Proverbs 27.20 says that Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. As a man are never satisfied if you're living apart from fellowship with God. We are going to keep on looking for the next thing, but the next thing will never satisfy and will leave us just as empty. Now children, haven't you, haven't you noticed this sometime? You, you fix your eye on some toy or some game that you like, you think is cool, and you think, oh wow, if I just got that thing. I would be happy. I would never be bored. I would never pester mom, pester my brother, pester my sister anymore. I would be so happy with this toy, happy with this game. And you get it. You play for it a while. It's, it's great for a while, but then it's kind of like, eh, I'm, I'm bored. I want, I want something else. Children, have you known that feeling? That feeling stays with you as a grown-up too. It does. Grown-ups can testify to that, or at least I can. One minister from, from olden times said, although it should please Almighty God to give any one of you, not only one, but all the crowns and scepters, all the kingdoms and empires of this world, you would be as far from satisfied as you are or can be now. Yes, and farther too. For the more you had, the more you would desire, so that you can never rest contented or fully satisfied, but only in the enjoyment of Him that is the center of all perfections. And seeing all things upon earth can never afford any satisfaction to you, what reason have you to set your affections on them? Why do you love these things? If these things will never satisfy the void that is there. The problem, though, is that we do set our affections on the things of this earth. We do love them. We do pursue them. And in pursuing them, we only hollow out ourselves in the process. We become 
like the Israelites of old who were described in 2 Kings 17.15 as those who followed vanity and became vain. They themselves became like that which they were pursuing. They became as vain and as empty as the things that they were pursuing. And this is where loving the world and serving the world, living for the world and being of the world will ultimately lead us is to emptiness and ultimately to destruction. And the reason is that the things of the world were not made to satisfy you. You were made for fellowship with God. Being cut off from that fellowship because of sin, the only way of restoration is through the mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. We must turn from our sins and run to Christ and be raised to new life in Him. And then for as many as have been raised to that new life, we must live in accordance with that reality. We have to recognize the truth of the things that we've considered this morning, that the things of this world will not satisfy us. And therefore, as Isaiah says, why, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And seeing that on the negative side, we must then, on the positive side, see that God is the highest and greatest good that can be desired and that he alone can satisfy our souls. We have to learn the truth of what David spoke in Psalm 36, 7 through 9, when he said, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. It's only in God alone that we can be satisfied because He alone is the one for whom we were made. And then being raised to new life in Him, we must live as those who have been raised. And therefore Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and following, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Beloved, this is how we are to live as strangers and exiles. We keep seeking those things which are above. We set our minds on those things which are above. We recognize that here on earth we have no lasting city and therefore we seek that city which is to come as we find in Hebrews 13, 14. We say to the Lord along with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And we join in the longing that was expressed by the sons of Korah in Psalm 42, where they say, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And longing for God, we say, When shall I come? And appear before God. And when we take such words to our lips, we do so in faith, recognizing that when we do appear before God, when our bodies are raised and when we enter into the new Jerusalem, that all will be right, that all will be fixed because God has fixed it and God has made it right. The situation will be such that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be mourning or death or crying or pain. The first things will have passed away. So we find in Revelation 21.4, And on that day there will no longer be any curse. We will serve God and He will illumine us. And we will reign forever and ever. And though as long as we dwell here 
We do have to use the things of the earth. We must do so, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.31, as though we did not make full use of it. That is to say, though we use the things of earth, we don't grasp them. We don't lay hold of them. We keep our hands open, as it were, trusting the Lord to give and the Lord to take away the things of the earth as he sees fit. And meanwhile, we turn toward the pursuit of the true riches, the heavenly riches. We make use of food and drink and money and possessions and land and all the rest, not as ends in themselves, but as means to an end. For whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God, all seeking his glory, all seeking his kingdom. And so may God strengthen us all to live as such strangers and such sojourners here below. And by his grace, may he bring us there to his eternal rest. Please pray with me. Our Father, we recognize the pull of the world on our souls, but we pray, Lord, that we would live as Abraham did, as a stranger and sojourner. Even when we have wealth as he did, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that we are strangers and sojourners here, that we would be seeking that heavenly and lasting city. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to abstain from those fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. We pray that you would help us to fix our hearts, our minds, and our hopes on the things above. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.